When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are holding steady above key levels, but with fresh concerns around DCG and other market participants, will this recent rally that we had last? We're going to discuss this with technical analyst Will Clemente. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. My name is Marco Oliveira. Let's jump straight into the latest price action. So the total market cap has once again dipped below $1 trillion. We're following developments by the Justice Department. A press conference was set to begin about right about now. A tweet announcing that the conference said it would be about quote, international cryptocurrency enforcement action. Some rumors speculating right now, just speculation that it could have to do something with Binance. Um, we saw a sudden change in sentiment around the time that this tweet landed. Before that, Bitcoin had hit a high of 21,500 that it hadn't seen since September. It then fell sharply and is now trading below 21,000. However, it remains some 20% higher on a weekly basis. Ethereum is trading lower as well. It hadn't enjoyed the same, uh, the same, quite the same bounce as Bitcoin. Nevertheless, it's up 15% on a trailing seven-day basis, currently changing hands at around 1,500. Another token that we're looking at today is Shiba. Uh, Shiba Inu, the so-called Dogecoin killer, is one of the best performers today. It rose by double digits on a 24-hour basis earlier today, but has given up most of those gains. Shiba is also now the 13th biggest token by market cap. According to data from CryptoQuant cited by Decrypt, the amount of Sheep tokens being transferred to exchanges saw a massive spike on January 10th. Over 14 trillion to tokens were deposited on exchanges, exchanges that day. Decrypt says the surge in the price suggests the holdings are possibly being used to open derivative positions rather than being sold on, in the spot market. However, if the current sheep price action is rooted in the derivatives market, it could experience increased volatility if long positions begin to liquidate. The team behind the token is also trying to turn it into more than just a meme. Uh, earlier this week, they announced they're building Sheeb's own layer two network called Shibarium to operate atop Ethereum. Obviously, there's many more charts that we're going to go over with Will. So let's bring him in right now. Will Clemente is the co-founder of Reflexivity Research. Will, welcome back to the show, man. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm doing really well. Nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you. How was your New Year's? How's everything uh, going that way? Pretty good, man. Just, uh, you know, grinding it out and uh, excited for a new year. You know, after uh, the shit show of last year, I don't think this year could be any worse, at least from a uh, kind of crypto native contagion perspective. So I feel optimistic for this year and I'm excited for uh, what 2023 has in store. 
Awesome, man. I love the optimism, especially with like stuff like this news we were just talking about with the Justice Department and everything. We're going to get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, but before that, I just want to send a reminder to the viewers. Make sure to pop your questions in for Will in the live chats on the Real Vision website or on YouTube. You can also ask them in our Discord. Our producer is going to pick the best ones, and then we're going to ask Will at the end of the show. With that said, let's jump into our first story. So one of the major ongoing concerns for crypto investors is around the DCG, Digital Currency Group. Uh, Bloomberg reports the company has halted dividend payments. In a letter to shareholders dated January 17th, seen by Bloomberg, DCG says the move is aimed at, quote, strengthening our balance sheet by reducing operating expenses and preserving liquidity. DCG subsidiary crypto lender Genesis has been locked in a legal battle with the exchange Gemini. Last week, U.S. regulator Securities and Exchange sued both Genesis and Gemini over allegations of selling unregistered securities. So obviously, Will, this has been like a really, you know, an ongoing saga. People are wondering, is the contagion over? You know, we had a huge, obviously a huge event with, you know, situation with FTX. Now we're having rumors with, with Binance and other kind of things. I mean, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Have the, has leverage been flushed out? Do we have something to be concerned about with DCG Genesis and, you know, at all in terms of whether something else might happen in the markets? Sure, it's a great question. I think, you know, it's first important to state that, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, cyclically, whenever you have kind of any type of like credit contagion, and then conversely in the bull market, when you have a sequence of positive events, market participants just naturally continue to extrapolate out, you know, further worse and worse, uh, you know, potential events in the future in a bear market or further positive events taking place in a bull market. And so, I think over the last few months, uh, with a lot of the craziness that we've seen, uh, basically, you know, every single major centralized crypto entity in, in, in the space blowing up, uh, with the exception of maybe a few that you could count on your hand, um, you know, I think it's, it's understandably, you know, so that, that market participants have been extrapolating out that there'll be further contagion. But in my view, you know, I think kind of FTX is probably the biggest last shoe to fall. Um, I think a lot of the, you know, concerns around Binance were, kind of a, I guess, uh, you know, bearish kind of euphoria of like, extrapolation out of a second FTX taking place. Um, you know, I think, I think uh, in terms of just looking at the, you know, reserves of, of, of Binance from not only just their proof of reserve, but like independent like blockchain forensics that different on-chain, you know, data uh, providers have done on, on Binance's wallets. Uh, you know, you could see 50 to, to $60 billion in assets that, that Binance holds. That might be down a bit um, from the last time I looked at it, but it's probably somewhere in this, that same ballpark. You know, it's just a, a stark contrast to watching Alameda, you know, pull a bunch of shit coins out of random DeFi farms, uh, trying to shore up liquidity as people began to, to pull their funds off of FTX. Um, so, you know, I, I think in, in general, um, you know, we've probably seen like the largest shooter drop in terms of FTX. And with the DCG concerns, you know, I think, you know, they, they, they likely have, you know, a solvency issue, but like, I don't think it's to the same degree as FTX, where it was like flat out fraud, right? Um, you know, I think you've, you've seen kind of like a mismanagement of risk from Barry basically, you know, uh, piling borrowed funds into trying to prop up the GBTC price. Some of those came from Gemini Earn. And of course, you know, we've seen the SEC charge them as basically uh, saying that it was an unregistered securities offering, which, um, you know, makes sense, right? Because they were basically taking funds from retail. Uh, to pile into basically doing stock buybacks on their on their trust. Um, so like in terms of like outright fraud in terms of you know like a comparison to FTX for example, um, I, I don't I don't see it that way. And mm -hmm. I also think you know these things probably take longer to play out than people realize. 
I mean, um, you know, this isn't a, a comparison directly to Mt. Gox, but I mean, just look at kind of how, you know, Mt. Gox uh, bankruptcy proceeding played out. I mean, it's, it's taken, what, nine years now? Uh, and so I think, you know, for, for the expectation of DCG to basically be liquidating all of their assets immediately, I don't think that's a, a realistic expectation. I think it probably plays out longer than, than people expect. Um, and I also think, you know, people need to remember that Barry has like a bankruptcy restructuring background before he got into crypto and he understands how to kind of play this game really well and do kind of a lot of different shell games between the different entities to try to kind of protect uh, the, the parent company of DCG itself. And so with that, you know, I think uh, a lot of the kind of immediate like market related concerns are probably a, a bit overblown, but, you know, it is a really unfortunate situation for kind of the, uh, you know, Gemini Earn users that, um, you know, of course, you know, everyone's responsible for their own funds, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, retail investors aren't going to be you know, checking the, uh, the, you know, the 10 page long terms of service, like, let's just be honest. And so, you know, I, you know, ethically, I think there's a lot of kind of concerns to be made around, um, you know, the fact that they were basically taking customer funds and then using, you know, using them to take on venture bets and, and share buybacks and things of that sort. And so I think there'll probably be some type of regulations that are put into place to prevent that moving forward at a minimum. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I, I I kind of agree with you. I would say that, you know, yeah, there might be a solvency issue with DCG, but I would it have the impact, the same force selling that we saw with FTX? Maybe not very likely, especially because it seems like a lot of the players that are left right now in crypto are still very serious about crypto. They, they're just, you know, long-term believers, and I think they're going to hold the asset. Yeah. So as we're speaking about uh, centralized exchange, centralized players, uh, you know, the crypto winter is having an impact on other big players. Crypto exchange Coinbase has announced it's halting operations in Japan. All users of Coinbase Japan have to withdraw their money by February 16th. The company blames ongoing market conditions for the move. It has it had earned a license to operate in Japan in June 2021. This decision follows a similar move by Kraken. In contrast, in contrast, uh, Binance is in the process of returning to Japan after previously exiting the market you know will when they say you know that the company's blaming ongoing market conditions for the move i mean what do you make of a statement like that from coinbase um look you know i think kind of the way i i see you know the, the crypto kind of space playing out from like a centralized entity standpoint is like you'll probably have these kind of u.s regulated institutional players uh, and that's kind of the the market that coinbase i think is, is looking to capture and i think they're really well situated to do so, especially after the FTX blow up. Um, you know, Coinbase is a you know publicly traded company audited by a top four accounting firm. You know, they've never had any you know withdrawal issues or anything like that. Um, while you know, I think you you have these other players with Binance being the obvious like eight hundred pound gorilla in the space um, that capture kind of all the offshore activity. And so I think that that's kind of how the I guess like segmentation of liquidity probably plays out moving forward. Um, and likely also see that with, you know, other, other platforms such as, you know, lending platforms, for example, um, or like, you know, looking at like DEX volumes versus centralized exchange volumes. I think um, you'll likely see like, you know, decentralized exchange volumes grow on a relative basis to centralized exchange volumes over the coming years. And a lot of that, that activity probably comes from overseas. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for, for time purposes, I definitely want to move on to your year in review and forward outlook report. It's a great report that you guys released, released on your website. It's Thank available you. for free, uh, you know, on your, uh, you know, for people who are interested in it. We're not going to be able to cover everything because it's really extensive, uh, but definitely want to cover, you know, a, a, you know, a few things here. And let's start with uh, inflation because obviously inflation was a huge narrative last year. It's likely going to be a huge narrative this year uh, because obviously we're going to find out whether the terminal rate is going to be 5%. We're going to find out what happens, you know, to inflation after we reach the terminal rate. Will we actually, you know, will inflation fall like off like a cliff or will it be stickier than we think? And uh, you actually have a chart showing core CPI versus the federal funds rate. I'm, I'm curious if you could walk us through this chart and then also your view on inflation and the Fed and how you think things are going to play out this year, Will. Yeah, absolutely. First, I want to give a shout out to our macro analyst, Fijiao. He's absolutely brilliant. One of the... Uh, best macro guys that I know and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, brought him on for, for the purpose. Um, this is a chart that he put together basically looking at year-over-year uh, -year CPI uh, and the federal funds rate. And so, you know, when you go back and look at this historically over, you know, a, a multi-decade view, uh, what you see is that whenever you have kind of aggressive inflation in terms of measured, you know, measured by this consumer price index, uh, it generally, you know, doesn't roll over until you see the federal funds rate surpass, uh, you know, what, what the CPI is at. Uh, and so we're kind of approaching where it looks like, you know, CPI has been rolling over. We've seen the last few CPI prints, um, you know, come in, you know, very uh, lower than, than, than expected. This recent one came in right at, you know, analyst expectations. Um, but, you know, we, we've been used to the last 12 to 16 months of, uh, you know, higher than expected CPI, you know, month after month after month. And so you can really start to see over the last few months that CPI has started to cool off and appears to be starting to roll over. Uh, and so with that, I think you could be looking at that kind of crossover of the federal funds rate finally getting above CPI uh, over the coming months, perhaps not because, you know, the federal funds rate is going to be continuing to be raised. As you mentioned, you know, we're approaching the terminal rate, maybe have one or two more hikes, um, but because rather the, the CPI is actually rolling over. And I think that's partially a reflection of just the fact that there tends to be a lag in terms of when monetary conditions start to get tightened uh, and when that actually translates into the broader economy. Right. And so, you know, we had a massive liquidity insertion that's kind of given a cushion, I think, to the economy in terms of how quickly the impact that we've seen, uh, the, the, you know, the, the effect of rates being raised over the last uh, you know, 12 months, actually translating into economic impact. Um, but, you know, over the last you know, few months, we finally started to see some, for example, looking at employment, uh, you know, several major companies, you know, uh, announcing the large, you know, uh, rounds of layoffs, including crypto native, uh, crypto -native companies like Kraken and Coinbase. Um, but even, you know, a lot of the big tech players like Amazon, uh, Microsoft recently over the last few days, I think they laid off like 11,000 people, 10 or 11,000 people, which was, which was pretty big news. Um, so I think, you know, you're finally starting to kind of see that, uh, you know, the, the record, you know, rate of, of, uh, you know, rate hikes and the extreme velocity of, of, of those rate hikes finally starting to translate into the actual broader economy. And, uh, with that, I think you'll likely see, you know, CPI continue to roll over and you'll see that kind of crossover of the federal funds rate getting above CPI over the coming months. Yeah, absolutely. And then as we speak about CPI, you know, something that people used to talk about a lot was that the CPI number is not the real inflation number. Um, and I just saw this newsletter from uh, Pomp uh, recently that he was he released uh, talking about the inflation methodology. I'm curious if you think like if you feel like the CPI is a kind of like an accurate reflection and, you know, if the Fed will have to do more, if it's stickier, what do you think there? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. Um, the way I look at it is that, yeah, I mean, CPI is basically this manipulated basket selected by a group of individuals that kind of decide, you know, what they want the measure of inflation to be. 
and also, you know, inflation is very different uh, for every individual, right? So for you or I as investors, you know, we might be mainly, you know, watching asset prices uh, for, for inflation, right? And, you know, someone who's, you know, just struggling to, to you know, get by day to day, um, you know, go operating on like a paycheck to paycheck basis, you know, like for them, just looking at like food and, and rent is like extremely important. And, you know, for some people uh, that are in college, like that, that's one of the most important, you know, components, right? So I think um, for, for every individual, that kind of basket of, of you know, what makes up, um, you know, your spending habits is like slightly different. And so I think everyone's CPI, uh, it, it's very hard to come up with like a standardized, ver standardized version of like what everyone's basket of, of you know, uh, inputs into their cost of living is. And I would also argue that I think, you know, the more important thing to look at for, for, you know, like something like a Bitcoin where it's basically been basketed in as kind of this risk on asset, which I would say is more of a reflection of, as its performance as a monetary debasement hedge. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of people have mentioned uh, Bitcoin as the CPI inflation hedge. And I would kind of add in a little bit of nuance to that. You know, you've seen a lot of people saying, oh, well, well Bitcoin's failed as inflation hedge. Uh, you know, we've seen, you know, CPI continue to, to rile up over the last year and Bitcoin's down 70%. Um, I would argue that it's actually performed exactly how it should as a monetary debasement hedge. Uh, you know, and what I mean by that is basically there's kind of a lag between uh, when you see liquidity come into the system and when that actually starts to get reflected by the, you know, CPI, which is the selected you know, basket of goods. Um, you know, if, if you wanted to see, in, in my opinion, if you want to see, you know, monetary uh, the effects of, you know, the monetary debasement over the last 10 to 15 years, all you had to do is look at the S&P 500 uh, and you'll see asset price inflation and, you know, look at the real estate market and you'll see asset price inflation. Uh, and so, you know, th th that's kind of the argument that I would make is that instead of, you know, kind of viewing Bitcoin as this like CPI consumer price index, uh, you know, inflation hedge, I would say the, the more accurate measure for, for Bitcoin's performance is looking at kind of like net liquidity conditions. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you can see that by looking even at something like, M2 money supply, um, or looking at, uh, you know, like net liquidity, looking at like reverse repo and TGA accounts and you know, coming up with this basket of, of, of what's called net liquidity that was kind of coined by uh, Darius Dale at 42 Macro. Uh, we've seen like the S&P basically after 2020, basically trading tick for tick with that net liquidity. Um, so I think that that's kind of the more important thing that you need to be looking at. And, and for Bitcoin as for better, or for worse being basketed and as this kind of this growth asset by at least the traditional you know, investment community. That's, uh, I think, one of the, the most important metrics that you need to be watching. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, Bitcoin is a monetary debasement hedge and not a CPI inflation hedge. And of course, you know, like you just said, like all assets move up when there's, you know, liquidity enters the markets and Bitcoin is the fastest mover uh, when that happens, you know, it moves the quickest when it comes to that. Um, as we're speaking about Bitcoin, I actually want to move on to, you know, the topic of one of the main topics that I wanted to focus on uh, for for our interview, and that's uh, the Bitcoin miner situation. Because last time you were on, we spoke about it. There's been some updates and developments. I want to first start by actually bringing in a story that ties into this. Uh, so Bitcoin miners grids debut on the New York Stock Exchange has been delayed once again. Grid was supposed to merge with a special purpose acquisition company, a SPAC called Adit EdTech. 
The reverse takeover, which would take grid public, was announced back in November 2021. However, an SEC filing shows the deadline for the combination has been moved to February 14th. It also looks increasingly less likely to happen at all. Added has revealed it anticipates it will no longer satisfy NYSC's listing standards. So obviously, Will, it's been a rough market for Bitcoin miners. Uh, but I was also looking at your recent tweets, and you kind of also referenced the hash ribbon chart and the uh, met, uh, the minor net position change recently in the past couple of weeks on on Twitter. You know, and you 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 mentioned you think the capitulation is over. Could you elaborate on those on those tweets? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, I guess just to rehash, and this is something that we talked about the last time I was on, so I won't get uh, too into the weeds on this. But it's been, uh, you know, for lack of better terms, it's just been like such a horrible horrible year for, uh, or at least in 2022, 2022 is such a horrible year for Bitcoin miners. You had all the variables that go into being a successful miner going against you. Uh, hash rate near all-time highs, price down 70%, and global energy prices at multi-year highs. Uh, and so all of those things have, you know, put an extreme pressure on, on miner margins, especially those that don't have fixed energy contracts, um, and also, you know, those who have like very high OPEX. Uh, and so, you know, what, what we've seen over the last 12 months is two kind of capitulatory periods. And you can look at that in the chart that you have pulled up now, represented by something called hash ribbons. Uh, hash ribbons look at the 30 and 60 day moving averages of hash rate. Uh, and so the idea here is that, you know, these are some arbitrary numbers, basically back testing. These are like the most accurate to represent these periods of minor capitulation uh, identified by this guy named Charles Edwards, who's a friend of mine who runs a hedge fund called Capriol Investments in Australia. Um, whenever the 30-day goes below the 60-day moving average of hash rate, that indicates that we're entering a period of minor capitulation. Whenever you see the 30-day cross back above the 60-day, that indicates that we're exiting that period. So we entered a period uh, originally back in June of 2022 of minor capitulation. Uh, I kind of led that leg down uh, into kind of the, the summer lows that held for, for several months. Um, during that period, we saw several miners capitulate and also looking at the minor wallets, we saw you know, several uh, large kind of moves out of, of minor wallets. Uh, most notably, we saw Core Scientific sell about $170 million of their BTC uh, on their balance sheet to kind of, you know, shore up some liquidity to help them survive for a few months. Uh, we have seen, you know, that they weren't able to kind of weather the storm. They're going on, likely going under some type of like restructuring at the moment. Um, but we entered, we kind of, we came out of that period and then re-entered another one about two months ago, uh, as we saw that 30-day uh, moving average fall back below the 60-day. And with that, we saw that translate into some heavy minor selling. So I guess if you want to go over to that minor net position change chart, you can really kind of see the, the point that I'm illustrating. Uh, you'll see this is essentially the 30-day change in all the minor wallets that have, I, that have been identified by Glassnode. Um, and as you can see, uh, once we kind of saw that, that second kind of capitulatory period begin, we saw very heavy selling for miners, which is a reflection of, A, you know, a, a, as hash rate declines and you see that bearish, you know, hash ribbing, uh, cross that indicates that there's a you know very uh, aggressive kind of uh, period of, of, of machines being unplugged. So miners that are no longer profitable, uh, you know, pull their machines off the network uh, because they're just operating at a loss. Uh, so it doesn't make sense for them to mine at the moment. Uh, and then you also see that uh, again, again translated into this chart, uh, them having to offload a lot of the, the BTC that potentially they are holding on their balance sheet as long-term Bitcoin believers or investors or whatever. Uh, and so we saw a very aggressive period of selling. That kind of peaked out about a month ago. You saw that big, you know, large wick down on, on the screen in that chart. But recently, uh, over the last two weeks, you see confluence both in this as the minor net position uh, changes finally flipped positive. So miners are no longer selling in aggregate. They're actually increasing their holdings in aggregate at the moment. 
you also see that uh, with that bullish uh, hash ribbons cross. So, you know, seeing confluence of both things, you're seeing A, uh, that miners are beginning to plug machines back in. And then secondly, they're, they're kind of done selling and are, are net kind of uh, adding to their, to their wallets. And so that's a confluence of, of factors to me to indicate that we've exited, at least for the time being, uh, this kind of second minor capitulatory period, which is, of course, a positive thing and takes some of the kind of the overhang of, of supply coming out to the market. Yeah, absolutely a positive thing. And I, I think just to, to speak to kind of or to kind of enforce or reinforce what you were saying, I was reading the um, Glassnodes, the, they have like the, a newsletter every week this week on chain. And they had a section about uh, uh, Bitcoin, uh, the relief for Bitcoin miners. And actually another chart worth pulling up here is uh, if Arthur, if you could pull it up, is the Bit Bitcoin's difficulty regression model uh, from Glassnode. And it was it was saying, according to the chart, the estimated cost of production is eighteen thousand seven hundred ninety five. Uh, and, you know, this recent leg up is the first time that Bitcoin's price crossed above this regression line. So it's signaling kind of like, hey, this is it's actually profitable to mine, you know, Bitcoin again. And it kind of supports, you know, more or less what you're saying. I mean, what what do you how do, what, what do you make of this chart and kind of how it relates to, like, I guess, the, the, the cost of production for Bitcoin in that in that in that sense? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know exactly what the methodology behind this specific metric is. I'll have to look at the formula for it. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, just. Generally speaking, like it is pretty difficult to like gauge exactly what the cost of production for Bitcoin is, just because the you know different miners have you know different kind of opex structures, and you know some of them have, for example, like I mentioned earlier, like fixed energy contracts. Uh, you know some of them are able to offer operate you know more efficiently for whatever reason. If they're you know they've just figured out some trade secret on how to operate with like less human capital or. Um, you know, they have certain cooling methods for the machines that, you know, allows them to, to you know, drop their OPEX. Like, there's different variables that can allow miners to have a, a different cost of production. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, th this also kind of is confluence with uh, another indicator that I look at to kind of gauge the, the electrical cost and, and production cost of Bitcoin miners from, uh, again, my, my buddy, uh, Charles Edwards at Craft Real Investments, um, who also created uh, hash ribbons, because if you can't tell, he's created two. Uh, minor indicator. So he, you know, obviously believes that the kind of underlying, you know, cost of production is very tied in with the price of Bitcoin as a commodity. Um, but he created this based off a bunch of data from Cambridge and surveys that they had done. Uh, and you see also in, in the indicator that he put together uh, very similar uh, kind of estimated electrical cost. And then his cost of production is estimated to be somewhere around 25K, including not just the electrical components, but also uh, some of the other, you know, operational costs that are associated with being a miner. Uh, I, I think like it just from like a first principles basis though, it does make a lot of sense that, you know, again, like none of these, none of these like production costs, you know, estimates are are perfectly accurate, but like ballparking, I think um, they're, they're likely rough, roughly accurate. And I think like with that, they're, they're a good kind of like high time frame tool to look at where's kind of that, that underlying cost of production that supports the price of Bitcoin, because from like a first principles basis, a commodity should be worth at a minimum what it's cost you know, to, to produce it. So um, but I guess that's kind of my thoughts. And of course, you know, as, as we're now back above that estimated cost of production, at least shown by, by this indicator, which I would have to look at the, uh, methodology for it. But if it was created by checkmate at Glassnode, I'm sure, uh, there's, there's some sound thinking behind it. Yeah. Um, but you know, a, a, as we're back above that, obviously the, you know, uh, we're, we're kind of giving miners some, some well-needed relief after the last few months as they're now profitable in aggregate. 
Absolutely. I just want to pivot away. Like, I just got a quick update from our producer, Arthur, regarding the Department of Justice press conference. So the DOJ, after they announced that they're taking enforcement against the Russian exchange, Bizlato. So obviously this was, uh, you know, a bit of a, you know, not the news that we thought it would be in terms of exchanges affecting us here in the United States. Uh, crypto prices are now recovering. I think at a minimum, like maybe people didn't get like Giga short into that news, but there's probably a lot of people that kind of hedged it out and said, I don't know exactly what this announcement is going to be. You know, I'll hedge like 5% of my notional position sizing. And so like when it turns out to be a nothing burger, which you see sometimes with these kind of like Department of Justice, like, you know, like, uh, like big regulator headlines that are like very vaguely like over announcing some huge, some huge clamp down on crypto. And then it turns out to be like some no name Russian exchange. Uh, you know, a lot of those hedges that were probably put on over the last few hours are probably, you know, being unwound. And that's probably why you've seen a slight recover in, in prices after the uh, news came out. Hey, well, so that's, uh, yeah, it's always uh, good news when prices are recovering. Um, I want to get back to uh, some of the stuff in your report here. So the next chart that I want to look at is the active uh, Bitcoin addresses, because, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people have focused on with all these contagion events and DCG, Genesis, et cetera, you know, it's that they've been focused on a lot of the negative and I want to kind of, you know, highlight the positive st statistics that uh, we see the positive data. Can you walk us through what's going on with the active uh, Bitcoin addresses chart? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, this is something that exactly what you alluded to that I really wanted to hit on in the report, which is that, you know, although the last year has been absolutely horrible, uh, there's a lot of kind of underlying silver linings that I think are important to hit on. And, and you've got a couple of these charts up there. Um, one of the one of the ones that's very simple, but I think like speaks volumes is this active addresses chart. They're on a 30 day moving average just to kind of smooth it out in the report. Uh, essentially, what you're looking at here is all the active addresses that are sending or receiving BTC on any given day. Um, as you can see, you know, whenever we head into a bull market, uh, there's more market participants that come in, right? Because Bitcoin's price is going up only. Uh, everyone says, well, what the hell is this thing? It's, it's gone up, you know, a factor of 5x in the last few months. Uh, you know, maybe I should get some exposure. Maybe I should, you know, nibble a little bit and, and you know, kind of dip my toe in the water to see what this Bitcoin thing is all about. Uh, and so with that, we, we, whenever we're in a bull run, we see a massive increase in active addresses just naturally. Uh, mm -hmm. But what, what the real signal is, is whenever you head back into the bear market after kind of the market cools off, uh, kind of, you know, this, 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 you know, speculative market participants and kind of the, the tourists leave the market, uh, every single bear market, you make a higher low in, in terms of the amount of active addresses that remain on the network. And so to me, what that indicates just from like a, a adoption standpoint uh, is that, you know, although you have a large amount of people that only get into Bitcoin because the price is going up in the bull market, uh, you know, a, a larger amount of people, um, you know, do a kind of deep dive into fundamentally understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin uh, and stick around on the network. And so over time, what I think the real signal is in looking at this is the fact that every bear market, you're making higher lows in terms of active addresses. And as long as that's taking place, you're seeing, you know, continued increase in, in adoption over time. And so with that, we haven't made a, uh, a lower low yet in, in terms of active addresses. And so I think, you know, it's just a reflection of what we see every single bear market of, you know, you, you shake out the tourists, but you have an increased amount of people that discovered Bitcoin over the last, you know, bull market and have stuck around and have kind of fundamental conviction in the assets. Yeah, every yeah, every cycle, if you people get excited by the price, but then they get caught down, they go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and they're like, oh, I need this stuff forever. Uh, they they hold it. They become long term hodlers of of a Bitcoin. And I'm curious, like, uh, you know, because this active Bitcoin address obviously, you know, has um, encompasses all holders. Is there anything specific? We don't have any charts here, but is there anything specific that you see in long term holder behavior on on chain? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. 
Um, first of all, like long-term holder supply itself, which I guess I should preface by just defining what that is for the sake of conversation. Uh, it, it looks at uh, the way Glassnode defines this, which is like the primary on-chain uh, data provider that I use. What they've done is they've looked back at kind of the statistical like spending likelihood of all the different uh, wallets on-chain and basically looking at like from a time standpoint, what's kind of the threshold where the likelihood of coins being spent out of a wallet drops off the most. And what they found is that uh, right around five months, you see the largest drop off in terms of the likelihood of coins to be spent again. I guess that's kind of subject to change as more data comes in over time, but that's kind of the threshold that they have at the moment. Um, and so that's how they define long-term holders. Um, and so when you look at kind of this cohort of, of entities that have been on chain and held their Bitcoin for over 155 days, which is also five months, 155 divided by three, um, what you see is that, you know, uh, right now their, their holdings are near all-time highs. And then another interesting stat is that when we look at the uh, like the percentage of, of long-term holder supply that's underwater, so like in loss, in a state of loss, so you know bought at previous prices than what we're tra trading at, uh, and that's defined by you know when the coin was last moved. So you know coins that have last gone into the long-term holder's wallet, you know above above you know 21k, um, that's at an all-time high. So you know you're you're seeing not only are you know long-term holders underwater to an extent that you know they've never been before. But, you know, when we look at their actual holdings, you know, despite them being underwater, they're continuing to add. So that, that really shows as well uh, kind of a, the fundamental belief that these long-term holders have in, in, you know, Bitcoin as an asset class. And, you know, despite the kind of 70% drawdown uh, that we've seen, you know, Bitcoin's had seven or eight of these throughout its history. And I think, you know, uh, the, the market participants that really have a fundamental understanding you know, of, of what Bitcoin is, view this kind of, uh, you know, bear market, you know, capitulatory period over the last few months. And, you know, seeing a lot of these centralized, you know, entities blow up and force selling from not only them, but also miners and kind of uh, fund redemptions at the end of the year. Just a lot of kind of like un unnatural selling that, that that's taken place. I think a lot of these kind of long-term uh, holders kind of view that as a, uh, a buying opportunity. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, before we get to viewer questions, let's. Um, I, I have one final question for you, and it's related to kind of just your outlook for you know digital assets, crypto in 2023. I'm curious, like, if there's any products that are exciting you. What sectors do you think are going to see growth? I know you guys in the report you outlined some things like um, Ethereum scaling solutions and options infrastructure. What's getting you excited? What's getting your team excited? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I'll try to like stay high level without like you know talking about any specific protocols. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think from a high level, like one one key thing that we're watching throughout the year is just this idea of will you know ETH kind of see all the value accrual in terms of you know uh, of activity going to layer twos, or will you see kind of this like multi smart contract platform world uh, which is connected by by bridges? And so one of the things that I, you know at least we at Reflexivity find most interesting these kind of cross-chain messaging platforms where, you know, regardless of, you know, if you see kind of ETH scale into activity going to layer twos, or if you see activity going to multiple smart contract platforms uh, by kind of betting on these cross-chain messaging platforms, you kind of capture both of those potential scenarios. Uh, and so that's something that I think we find interesting. Uh, also, our, our DeFi analyst, Knower, uh, has highlighted in, in the report, uh, as, as you mentioned, kind of DeFi options and, and the resurgence of a, you know, several different DeFi option solutions and be great if he was on here to, to riff on that because he's brilliant talking about uh, DeFi much more eloquently than I can, but that's something that uh, he's definitely very interested in. And so it's something that, that we're keeping an eye on as well. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. 
Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, uh, so now it's nearly time for viewer questions. Before that, for those of uh, for those of viewers watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to get early access to Real Vision crypto content. Content This Friday, we release Rao's epic interview with Punk6529. And epic really isn't an exaggeration. It's the longest interview Rao has ever done. And again, that's realvision.com forward slash crypto. If you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. And uh, Will, this is a fun one. This one's coming from Seth Steinman on YouTube. He says, hey, Marco, this is Seth Steinman, research analyst at Reflexivity. Uh, figured I would hop on here and ask a question. Why do we continue to see hash rate at all-time highs, even over the past year of crypto winter? What yeah. do you think? Listen, um, Seth, Seth and I have known each other since sixth grade. I'm surprised he didn't you know, put something on there to bust my balls. But um, yeah, it's, it's a good question, Seth. And I think Seth you know, knows the answer to this. He probably just wanted to, to have you read his name out on on, uh, on the live stream. But yeah, when we look at hash rate, it's been very surprising because as we mentioned, um, you know, it's such a bad time to be mining over the last 12 to 16 months. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, what's driving hash rate being near all-time highs? And I think the answer to that is you're likely probably seeing some, you know, players in the energy space that have very low uh, energy costs or potentially, you know, no energy costs. Like, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, entity like a physical miner or something like that that's, you know, flaring off excess energy, uh, you know, they can utilize that in, into mining Bitcoin. And although, you know, Bitcoin as an asset class is relatively small, you know, for some of these, you know, several, several you know, $100 billion, uh, you know, energy producers, um, you know, Bitcoin miners bring in about $20 million of revenue a day. That's kind of peanuts for these guys, but, you know, at least it, it's enough where I think they can start to kind of dip their toes in the water, uh, understand kind of how to operate as a Bitcoin miner. And at least kind of you know build out a proof of concept for as bitcoin scales they can continue to grow that so i think like over time the kind of percentage of, of hash rate that's passive versus outright mining operations that are that are launched will probably grow over time and you probably have more of these kind of uh you know global energy producers that are utilizing excess energy uh as a, as a percentage of hash rate relative to these like miners that are launching specific like raising capital specifically to you know mine bitcoin uh, I think that's probably how, you know, hash rate will trend over time, just from like a first principle basis. Okay. Uh, the next question here from Mud Shear H on the Real Vision website, he's asking, what is the probability that the next halving will be priced in before the halving? I don't know if that's something you could speak to. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, I think, I think the thing that is important to keep in mind about the halving is that like the impact of the halving is it kind of diminishes over time. And like, what I mean by that is like, if you think about like you're you're in a bathtub, right? And you kind of push your hands down in the water. Well, what's that gonna do? It's gonna ripple the water all over, right? If you're in a, yeah. then you do you apply that same amount of pressure in a lake, it's not gonna move much, right? And then if you go in the ocean and do that, it's not gonna do anything. I think like over time, the kind of impact of the having diminishes, but I do think what was perhaps more important is kind of from like a narrative standpoint, um, you know, people get kind of, you know, excited around the fact that, okay, you know, historically, you know, the having has kind of led these like crypto bull runs. 
I think there's an argument also to be made that, you know, perhaps maybe the having itself wasn't what's driven, you know, maybe the last one or two bull runs. And it's been more importantly, um, you know, just like a natural market cyclicality, but also, you know, at least, you know, after, after uh, COVID, when we saw the massive liquidity injection that took place, as everyone knows, uh, I think, you know, it's a question of, you know, was it the having itself? Was it, you know, the massive liquidity injection that, that came into, into the economy? Or was it kind of a, a combination of the two? I don't know the answer to that, but I would just say that I think in terms of like the factors that you weigh into Bitcoin cyclicality, the having probably plays a smaller, you know, role in, in that over time, uh, you know, as, as it continues to mature and kind of the relative impact of, of the having, you know, if you look at the 2012 having versus, you know, the having that, that'll come up next year, uh, you know, the impact is just much smaller. And so therefore I think, you know, the market probably becomes more driven by other more extraneous factors over time and also just natural like behavioral market you know, cyclicality. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we have a few more questions, but I'm going to just stick with one because I know you have to leave at quarter two and I, you know, thank you for coming on. Uh, this last question from Paul E on the, on the Real Vision website, what happens to Bitcoin when a perfect storm of negative factors make mining unprofitable and too many miners shut down? Uh, does the blockchain go dormant? No, so it's a good question, right? Uh, I, you know, you get this question a lot about kind of like the minor death spiral. Uh, I think, you know, one of the most kind of beautiful and eloquent eloquent uh, aspects of, of the Bitcoin network that gets overlooked and not talked about is the difficulty adjustment, right? So, um, you know, as hash rate comes offline, um, you know, the, the difficulty will adjust accordingly. And so, you know, if all of the miners, you know, came offline right now, although the security of, of Bitcoin would be lower, uh, you know, difficulty would adjust and, and the Bitcoin network will continue to, to chug along accordingly. And then, you know, as, you know, fees are kind of kind of scale in terms of the size of the network, you'd have kind of a, a new base of, of, of hash rate to grow off of. So I, I, I don't really think that uh, the kind of like minor death spiral concerns really have a lot of validity because they just lack a fundamental understanding of, of the protocol itself and how the difficulty adjustment works. Um, and then also, you know, I think if, you know, you saw, you know, several of these big miners blow up, which we have seen to an extent this year, I think there's probably a lot of distressed asset, you know, buyers that, that probably would step in and buy some of those entities. Absolutely. Well, well, it's been a great conversation. Uh, if you could just sum up, you know, what are your key takeaways that you would leave the audience with? Yeah, sure. I think, like I guess, as a little hopium for the audience, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that, like, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, very big fundamental developments that have taken place in crypto underneath the hood over the last 12 months. Uh, you know, everything from Fidelity, you know, including Bitcoin and Ethereum in, into retirement accounts, allowing Bitcoin trading for retail, uh, BlackRock adding Bitcoin uh, you know, for their Aladdin customers, which are high net worth individuals. And they wouldn't be doing that if there was an underlying demand from clients uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, also seeing BNY Mellon offering uh, Bitcoin custody, uh, the NASDAQ offering Bitcoin custody, uh, Starbucks integrating NFTs into the rewards program. Uh, Visa recently announcing that they're going to be integrating Starkware into payments. Uh, these are all things that we highlighted in our, our year in review report, and I thought they were really important to include uh, because it just kind of shows you that, you know, despite all of the concerns underneath the hood, there continues to be adoption. And not just from some, you know, kind of no-name uh, random, you know, financial firms. These are big name, uh, you know, some of the largest players in terms of financial and transactional, uh, you know, space in, in the entire world. And so uh, I would just say, you know, although kind of the, the macro overhang, uh, for kind of the, the next 12 months in terms of an outlook for a recession still kind of remains a concern. I think you have kind of, you know, those factors pushing down on the market and perhaps as an overhang, but, you know, underneath the surface, you have kind of this upwards pressure of, of builders continually build out, uh, you know, new applications in the space and also, you know, fundamental kind of infrastructural developments taking place as well that will kind of 
give us the uh, the base for kind of the next the next uh, major crypto bull run over the next few years. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like there's signs of life as we've kind of outlined this conversation with the active Bitcoin addresses, with you know the miners and everything going on. Uh, I, I think, think that I think also sorry to cut you off, but I think yeah. one thing that that people should probably look out for is that as as crypto bottoms out and potentially you know maybe we even just see some pipe some pipe of like echo bubble throughout this year, which has been like a big meme that you've seen on crypto Twitter. Um, you probably see a lot of announcements take place and like a lot of, a lot of announcements that perhaps have been like held in the back pocket, back pocket of networks and and protocols over the last six to six to eight months. And the reason for that is just like, you know, understanding just how, you know, markets work, which a lot of these, you know, project founders do and have been in crypto for several years, you know, you want to kind of hold off on, on your good news until the market starts to turn around to really help drive your, you know, drive attention to, to your project, right? Like to an extent, like timing is, is a huge part of any success of any project or, or company in the crypto space, just because it's so cyclical and so volatile. And so with that, I think there's a, there's a good likelihood that, you know, if, if we continue to see positive price action uh, for Bitcoin in the broader crypto market, you'll probably see a lot more of these kind of positive announcements that, that all of a sudden are coming out of nowhere, like Avalanche with AWS, for example, which I think was a huge announcement. Yeah. Um, you know, th- these, these people, these people aren't, you know, doing this by, by coincidence, they understand kind of how the like attention economy and um, like attention to momentum works in, in the crypto space. So that's something that, you know, if we continue to see positive price action, I think uh, you'll likely see some, some, some more announcements that have kind of been held in the back pocket by a lot of these projects. Yeah, that's super interesting to hear because it sounds like there's probably a lot of good news float flying under the radar and that we're just going to find out when the price recovers and and then it's just going to lead to even more uh, price appreciation. So I think that's uh, definitely great news. Anyways, Will, how can people keep up with you uh, for you know anybody that wants to keep up with you or reflexivity research? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really enjoyed this one as well. We'll have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Maybe we do like once a month or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can, find, you can find me at uh, WClementiII on Twitter. Uh, more importantly, if you want to check out Reflexivity, you can go to reflexivityresearch.com. Uh, you can check out our year in review report that we referenced a bit here. Uh, it's about 40 pages, completely free. Uh, you can go ahead and check it out if you need some extra reading or something for the week. Uh, and then also we have six uh, example reports currently on the website that you can check out to kind of get a taste of what we cover. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again for coming on to the show. Thanks so much, Marco. Have a great day. You too, man. Uh, For those of you watching on YouTube, if you're not a Real Vision Crypto subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head to realvision.com forward slash crypto and subscribe and hit the notification bell here for good measure as well. That way you always stay up to date with our latest crypto news and analysis. That's it for today. Investor Mike Alfred is going to join us tomorrow live. See you at noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. (laughs) 